0: Well, today we are finally returning to the gospel according to Mark. So, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible to Mark th- uh, 3 and verse 20, that's where we'll be this morning. Been working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark with a few pauses in between for uh, Lord's Supper services or other little mini series that we had started. But today we're hopping back in. So, Let me just say, um, it has been a massive privilege so far to just set before our minds this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and just to dig into his word and, and dig into his life and his ministry and the works that he did and the teaching that he taught and so forth. Jesus is the the pinnacle of human thought. Have you ever thought about that? There is no subject higher. There is no, no more important thing or person that the human mind could contemplate than to learn who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Everything else about reality just flows out of that. Um, Every human being's eternal destination has to do revolving around what they know and believe about Jesus Christ. So all other knowledge, important as it may be, apart from knowing Christ, it's useless and it's vain, right? So it's just been a massive privilege just to set before our minds this person. And here we are getting the chance once again to study him. In the gospel of Mark. So I hope you know what a privilege it is. I hope your heart just approaches this type of thing with, with joy and uh, just great interest. Okay. Are you at Mark 3, 20? Okay. Let's take this as uh, not any mere man's words, but as the infallible, inerrant word of God. Let's read. Mark 3, 20 to 35 this morning. It says then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons and he called them to him and said to them in parables then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. We'll stop there. So today I just want to outline this section of Scripture in terms of these three different sets of people who make their assessment of Jesus, if you will. Let's kick it right off with the first one. Um, the first assessment that we get in the text is from Jesus' own people. The terminology actually in the original language could include both his family and his close friends. We'll call it family for short because as I read in the English Standard Version, it did say that and indeed it does include members of his family and I base that on verse 31 and 32 toward the end of the passage that we just read there. But what was their assessment of Jesus at this time? They said, his family said, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Now, we've seen people reject Jesus, right, and, and plot to kill him. Um, we saw the Pharisees doing that back in verse 6 of this very same chapter. But here we have an instance of Jesus' own close friends and family that were engaging in this, I don't know, you might call it like this soft rejection, if you will. They're not being as ruthless and conniving as these Pharisees were, but they had rejected him nonetheless. In other words, um, they weren't saying, we think he needs to die like the Pharisees were. They were saying something that perhaps sounded a little more polite. We think he just needs to lie down for a while. He's lost it, he's out of his mind, He's lost his senses. And we do know from other places in Scripture, like John 7, that Jesus' family, in particular his brothers, it says there, they did not believe in him at that time. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And you can read John 7 and they sort of mock him in this kind of sarcastic way there in John 7. Now, what in the world made them think that Jesus was out of his mind? Was he uh, was he exhibiting like erratic behavior or something? No. Was he acting like he belonged in a, a mental institution? Was he psychotic in some way? No. What was it then? Well, they probably heard of all these growing crowds. They heard about the uh, animosity of all the religious leaders. The religious leaders were going after him. They're plotting against him, even banding with some bigwigs in in the political system, the Herodians, to help them do it. And they may have concluded, he doesn't know what he's getting into. There's something wrong with him. He's gotten in over his head. Uh, But was that the case? Was Jesus in over his head? Was he, uh, was he out of his mind Has he lost his senses? Was their conclusion correct? No, it wasn't. Here's simply what he was doing. Jesus was simply doing what he would do his entire life, zealously obeying the will of his Father. That's it. John eight twenty nine. he said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's what he was doing. He was being obedient to what his father had sent him to do, right? It's amazing to kind of step back and think that Jesus' own family thought that he was a crazy person. He lost it. You'd think maybe they they would show up the crowds are listening to him or something, and they say, oh, you're here to see Jesus too? Isn't he great? Yeah, yeah, he's great. I got close to him once. Oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. Guess what? He's my brother. No big deal, right? <laughs> but that's not what they were saying. They weren't really proud to be Jesus' brother or part of his family. They thought he had lost it. And we don't exactly know what each family member's role was in this situation. We don't know what Mary's role was, for instance, but she did come along with her other sons to seemingly whisk Jesus away. And I think Mary understood who her son was, right? The angel told Mary um, while Jesus was still in her womb some of the things that he was going to do and be But did she fully understand everything that he was going to do? Probably not. Um, Did she have moments of weakness where she didn't understand perhaps why her son was doing what he was doing? I'm sure she had those moments. Did she perhaps let her sons, her other sons, talk her into coming along on this trip with them out of this motherly fear that maybe there is something wrong with him, I need to go check on him? We don't know all those details, and I don't want to speculate too much and come down super hard on Jesus' family, especially since if we were there, we might have thought the same thing. This man is something's... Is he off? Some of the claims that he's making, some of the things that he's teaching, perhaps he would have looked out of his mind to some of us as well. And I don't say all that uh, to... Um, preserve Mary's reputation or anything like that I think Mary was a sinner just like any other human being she was blessed of God of course to carry the son of God but she was not sinless Uh, Luke 1 talks about uh, Mary singing this song to the Lord it says God she says God was her savior so there's, there's no perfect human beings apart from the Lord Jesus Jesus was unique in that way right? But perhaps just in this moment of weakness, uh, Mary, who was a godly lady, like any human being might falter from time, to th- from time to time. Maybe she thought, I need to go check on him. He's lost it. So let's think about that assessment just for a little bit. Um, I think we ought to consider something here just by way of application already. <laughs> That devotion to God may look like insanity to people. Have you thought about that? Devotion to God might look like insanity to some people. Think about it. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father at every moment of his life. And praise God that he did because... None of us could be saved without that perfect obedience, right? That active obedience that Jesus earned is credited to us by faith. If he was sinful, we're still lost. So praise God that he was sinless. But what did some people think of him? Even those who had lived with him and seen him very closely, they just thought, at this moment at least, he's out of his mind. Let me ask you, um, And ask myself, this is something to evaluate. Have you ever been thought of as fanatical for living out your faith? I find it kind of interesting. I don't know about you, that um, anyone who would devote themselves, give themselves to a particular field of study or toward a particular art form, or toward mastering uh, a particular sport or something, well, we do nothing but admire that, usually, right? We admire their dedication, we admire their hard work, we'll even look up to them, we'll read their books if they write them, we'll consider them an expert in their field and just try to learn from them. But if someone devotes themselves to obeying God, what happens sometimes? They might be called a fanatic. People might avoid them, shun them. And, oh, I don't mean to come out swinging here with a lot of hard words right off the bat, but sometimes we need a challenge, don't we? I wonder how many of us have a safe form of Christianity. Safe in the sense that we have... um, We have silently determined in our own minds that we'll be glad to live like a Christian all the way up to the point that's just shy of looking too fanatical. And so we have, in essence, um, allowed other people's perception of us, mainly unbelievers' perception, ironically, to determine the boundaries of our obedience to God. I'll obey God this far, but when it starts to look kind of weird to people, well, that's, that's where I kind of pull back a little bit. To me, if we're thinking clearly, that's insanity, right? That's insanity. Letting other people's opinions of us determine how far we're going to go with our obedience to God. What about this way of thinking that's kind of related to that? Think of someone that you know um, who really and clearly loves the Lord and just forgets self in service to him. Do any of you know someone like that? Raise your hand if you know someone like that. There may not be a lot of people like that left. So I wasn't sure how many people would raise your hand. But those people are such a blessing to have in your life as an example. They're, just imagine this person then if you don't know somebody like this, but they're always speaking of the Lord to others. Whatever's coming out of their mouth, it seems like it's always of the Lord. They're always serving others in some way. They're always... Um, uh, gently and respectfully engaging with people who disagree with them and, and they're trying to gently defend the faith before unbelievers. They're constantly trying to open doorways into spiritual conversations with people. They're constantly memorizing scripture. They're constantly sharing what they're reading in scripture and so forth and so on. If you know somebody like that, consider yourself blessed, right? To, to have an example like that lived out in front of you. But what does the church at large and the church in general, we might say, what does the church tend to do with people like that? Well, if we want to paint it nicely, we might just say, they're kind of strange right? That's how it looks to us sometimes. They're strange. On the other hand, maybe we see somebody like that, and we don't necessarily think in a negative direction about them, but we view them as, um, we might say, they're an anomaly. Oh, they must be called to be a missionary or an evangelist or something, because that's not what a normal Christian looks like, Is it? Normal Christians aren't like that guy, are they? He must be called to something special if he's doing all of that. Or maybe he's just a Bible nerd or something. you, You name the term. Do you see the problem in those ways of thinking? We have set the bar absurdly low when it comes to devotion to God. I'm talking about we as Jackson Bible Church specifically. I'm talking about Christianity in general. If we see something that people might call fanaticism, we think, well, I appreciate that guy's zeal, but he just needs to chill out just a little bit, you know. And I do know people can be zealous without knowledge, and people can actually do damage with a misplaced zeal. But I'm not talking about that right now. I'm just talking about somebody living out the Christian faith in faithfulness to God, in just unashamed obedience, being willing to be a witness, engaging with people, loving people. And sometimes they receive the label weird, awkward, maybe even crazy. And the fact that uh, many people view devotion to the Lord as strange or or, uh, over the top just to me again is a testimony to the lackluster form of Christianity that is prevalent in our culture. But here's our correction. Here's our encouragement. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. There was something in Jesus' devotion um, that led people to believe that he was beside himself. And if that's how they thought about our master, then we should expect nothing less, right? If we're following in his footsteps, that is. And we should not try to tame down our obedience to him to the point that we just sort of start blending in with the culture. So I encourage you this morning, do not let unbelievers' expectations or cultural expectations or even the embarrassingly low bar set by some Christians Don't let those things curb your zeal and obedience to God. Unashamedly live like a follower of Christ. Even if they say he's out of his mind. Now who's the next group that makes their assessment of Jesus? Let's look at his foes, his foes. What was their assessment? <clears throat> their assessment was, he's satanic. Whoa. He's satanic. That is what the scribes from Jerusalem were saying. He's possessed by Beelzebub, And by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. Verse 12. That's amazing, isn't it? It's... Uh, by the way, just a little side note, it's telling to me that the scribes here, they don't try to deny at all that Jesus is doing legitimate miracles. He's really casting out demons. He's really healing people. He's really doing all these signs and wonders. They don't even try to make an argument that his miracles were Illusions or tricks or there's some naturalistic explanation for this they don't go there at all they could not deny the reality of his power they just made a terrible error and said it's not the power of God it's the power of Satan what a terrible assessment this was perhaps this is something that Christians might face as well Not to the same degree as Jesus, but maybe at least in the same category. We aren't performing signs and wonders like Jesus was doing, but if we obey God, you think we might be vilified? Might we be painted as um, bad guys, problems in the society? (laughs) Might we be seen as people um, who are holding up the progress of a secular culture? We already see that, don't we? We already see those sentiments. Christians are painted with just about every derogatory term you can think of. And sometimes that just comes from simply swimming against the current of a secular society that is just devoid of any fear of God or reverence for him at all. Um, parents and grandparents, I know we've got lots of parents and grandparents here today. Hear me out for a second. I think that our mindset for raising kids and for influencing grandkids should be this. And I know it's going to sound, maybe it'll sound shocking at first when I say this or strange but I think we should be raising our children preparing them to be martyrs for the gospel I know that sounds strange and I'm not saying we want them to be martyrs but I'm saying that we ought to have in mind their preparation to stand with God's word when nobody else around them is right? Even when every other person has denied God, they will be prepared to stand on the word of God. Even when they're vilified, they're called stupid, bigoted, backwards, whatever, let's prepare our children and our grandchildren to just be um, strong in the faith as much as it's up to us to do so. Amen? Amen. Um. Swimming against the culture is hard. Is it hard for you? Imagine what it's going to be like for your children and your grandchildren. It's hard. And, and we can't expect to give them a, uh, a regiment of, you know, three push-ups a day and then turn them loose against the raging river that is secularism and expect them to survive it. Let's prepare them to be vilified and have them learn to be okay with that because we're okay with it. we got to start with ourselves, right? We're in good company. They vilified Jesus. They said he was satanic. I quoted uh, Matthew 10, 25 earlier. Let me quote the rest of what Jesus said there. He said, "'If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, "'how much more will they malign those of his household?' So let's learn to be in the good company of Jesus, shall we? Now, how did Jesus um, respond to this particular assessment of him? First, he comes at it with just good old logic. God gave us logic and reason. You know that? And he he uses logic and reason against these ridiculous claims? How does he do it? Well, he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, he says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, doesn't that beg the question, why would Satan, who's the very cause of demon possession, try to terminate his own work? Wouldn't he be fighting against his own plans? That doesn't even make sense logically, he argues. that. That's a kingdom and a house divided. If Satan did that, well, then his kingdom would just crumble of its own accord. It would implode. That's Jesus' argument. And then he gives them a little parable in verse 27, and I'm just paraphrasing again. He says, if a person's going to go into a strong man's house and plunder his house, what does he got to do first? He's got to do something about the strong man first, right? He's going to have to tie him up. And by using this parable, Jesus was teaching what should have and probably was obvious that Satan was the strong man who had taken up residence in people's lives through demon possession and Jesus was breaking into the house and rescuing these people, liberating them. And in order for him to be able to do that, he had to bind Satan so in other words he's saying if you see me casting out demons out of people it's because I've got power over Satan i have bound him he's powerless against me I'm sovereign not him and I'm thankful that we serve a God who is sovereign over Satan aren't you he cannot do a thing Apart from God's permission. Read the book of Job. You'll get several examples there taught very plainly. Satan is on a leash. And he isn't doing anything that God doesn't have a good purpose for ultimately. And that's hard for us to see sometimes. But God who, it's God who is in control, not Satan. That's a cause for praise. Now... Let's deal with this while we're here because this is actually the occasion where Jesus teaches about a particular sin that he says will never be forgiven. You ever heard the phrase, the unpardonable sin? How many have heard that phrase before? Even though that phrase, the unpardonable sin, isn't used here, that's the way people typically refer to this. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. Um, In verses 28 to 30, we see Jesus talking about this sin. As I said, he says, it never has forgiveness. He calls it an eternal sin. And he begins this teaching with a very solemn phrase. He says, truly or amen. He said amen before he would say something. That's how it would work in... uh, Hebrew, and he would do it sometimes as well. We say amen after somebody says something that we're agreeing with, right? When you're, when you're about to say something uh, of great importance and maybe even has a tinge of this might surprise you now, listen, he'll start off saying it this way, truly I say to you. So listen up, I'm about to say something that you probably don't expect, but it's very important is what he's saying. He says All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. By the way, we could stop there and just praise the Lord. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But we need to explain what the next part means. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin sin. And then Mark adds a divinely inspired explanatory note when he says in verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, what does all that mean? There's been a lot of confusion surrounding the topic of the unpardonable sin. At least in my experience, there's been some confusion. What exactly is it? What does it look like? Uh, What does it sound like if it's something you say or something? How do you commit this sin? Have I committed this sin? People often wonder. Um, There's been a lot of sleepless nights for some folks worrying about, did I commit this sin in the past and I don't even remember it and now I'm unable to be forgiven? And admittedly, it does go against... um, How we're used to hearing forgiveness talked about. To hear Jesus talking about a sin that he says never has forgiveness goes against what we're used to hearing him say, right? We're used to hearing how Jesus can and will forgive all sins. Well, what is he talking about here then? Is it vague? Is it hard to understand? Is it hard to figure out? I really don't think it is. I think Mark explains it very clearly. But before I try to tell you what the, what the unpardonable sin is, let's say what it isn't. Because here's some of the things down through the years that people have said, well, that's the unpardonable sin. It isn't suicide. It isn't murder. It isn't adultery, rape, abortion, idolatry, homosexuality, drug abuse, drunkenness, Racism, hate, pride, it's not even denying Christ for a time. What did we read earlier? Peter denied him three times and he was restored, praise God. Well, what is the unpardonable sin then? Here it is. It is rejecting the work of the Spirit of God that comes through Jesus and attributes it to Satan. Satan. So it's rejecting the work of the Spirit of God that's coming through Jesus. You see that work and you say, that's not from God, that's from Satan. Another way of saying it is seeing the Holy Spirit do these mighty works through Jesus and rejecting that he has come from God. That's what Jesus calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Some people believe, some commentators, some scholars believe that um, this was a sin that could only be committed by those who were alive at the time that Jesus was on the earth, who saw him doing these things. That may be the case. But I think maybe this sin could be committed today. How would a person do that? Well, when a person comes face to face with who Jesus is, and they fully and finally and continually, all the way till their death, reject him as coming from God and having the Spirit, that is unpardonable. And it's not unpardonable because God doesn't have the power to forgive it or something. It's not like people are coming saying, oh, I messed up. I did the unpardonable sin. Please forgive me. And God says, I can't. It's not like that at all. It's unpardonable for the simple fact that it involves cutting yourself off from the only one who has the power to forgive sins. If you reject the only way of salvation, how are you going to be forgiven, right? Do you see what I'm saying? So if you're someone who, or if you know someone who's asking you about this later on or something, if you're someone who lies awake at night wondering if you've committed this particular sin in the past or something, you don't have anything to fear if you are repentant now. See, people who are guilty of this unpardonable blasphemy against the Spirit, they don't repent. They have rejected Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And by the way... Jesus doesn't say that these scribes here had definitely committed this sin. He doesn't say that they actually had committed it, but they were on the path to if they didn't repent. And that's why he warns them, and he warns anybody else who was listening at this time that if they died with that as their assessment of Jesus, then there's no way they could be forgiven. That's an eternal sin. But again, the repentant person Hasn't committed this sin. Praise the Lord. Even if they've been a Satanist in the past. Or an atheist. Or have had horribly blasphemous things said out of their mouth against God. Those things will all be forgiven if they're brought before Jesus in repentance. Paul was a blasphemer. He called himself that. Peter was a Christ denier. David was a murderer and an adulterer. All of them forgiven in Christ. Repentant sinners are forgiven of all their sin. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So this unpardonable one is, is one that you take to your grave. It's Going to your grave, thinking that Jesus is not from God, that he doesn't operate by the power of the Spirit, if that's you when you die, then you have not been forgiven, obviously, right? You have willfully cut yourself off from the only channel of grace through Christ. You're saying he's not from God. Well, then he's your only chance. You've cut yourself off from him. Hope that makes sense, but um, repentant sinners are safe in Christ from this sin. Now, let's look at the last group that made an assessment of Jesus in this passage. Let's call them, let's call them followers. Followers, what were they saying? They were saying. He's Lord. Is that a direct quote? No, but we can tell that that's how they viewed Jesus by what Jesus' assessment of them was. This is looking at verses um, 31 to 35. Jesus, he has this captive audience here. They were were seated around him as as he taught them, as he encouraged them, And his family shows up. Remember how they were coming to to seize him, it said, back in verse 21, because they thought he was losing it. Well, they showed up at this moment. And the crowd said to Jesus, Hey, your mother and, and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus says this, not out of disrespect to his family at all, but he says this to make a theological point. He says Who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around at all of them. And the word in Greek is like he looks around in a circle. They were seated all around him. He looks around at all of them that were seated there and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister, or excuse me, my brother and sister and mother. So apparently this was a group of, loyal followers people who believed in him and and were living out their obedience to God they recognized who he was as their Messiah they were displaying their faith to him by following him he says you guys are my family and when we come to Christ I love that he puts us in a family in his family God adopts us into his family. That is amazing. We become sons and daughters of God. And we gain other siblings in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're seated near some right now. Aren't aren't these your family? Hasn't God knit your hearts together because you both love Christ? Aren't we headed to the same place? Aren't we going to spend eternity together? In many ways, this is our family more than our even more than our blood relatives. This is a relation that will last forever. What a thought. So Jesus says, "Here's my family." It's the ones who do the will of God. And what's the will of God? Well, for one thing, is to believe on the one whom he has sent. John 6, 29. And they were doing that. And if we're doing that, well, we're part of his family too. I, uh, I love the truth of Hebrews 2 and verse 11 that teaches that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I'll close with this. It's based on that. I'll close with this. In his book uh, called He Is Not Ashamed, the author Eric Raymond, he says this. this. Listen to this beautiful illustration from his book. He says... Imagine if we gathered together all of the believers throughout history and lined them up for a massive family photo. Whom would we see? What kinds of people would be there? We may be surprised. Dotting the horizon of this picture, we'd find people with unflattering stories. Some are known as the chief of sinners, the sinful woman, the thief on the cross, and the prostitute we'd also see those who were overlooked and disregarded by society we'd find weak people unable to give God anything we'd even see those who wore the uniform of opposition to God at least at one time here in the portrait of grace we'd find a multitude of misfits it would be quite the picture He goes on, if this was your family, would you hang that picture on the wall or hide it in the attic? Now zoom in closer, he says. Focus on the middle of the picture. Jesus is there. Seems out of place, doesn't he? There in this panorama of redemption is Jesus, the perfect son of God, wedged shoulder to shoulder with people marked by their depravity. Jesus, identifying with men, women, and children of all ages and backgrounds, bearing the scars that narrate their painful stories and sinful histories, they surround Jesus. At first glance, we might think that Jesus doesn't belong with people like that. What business does majesty have with outcasts? But pouring over the scriptures, we see something else. In this family photo, Jesus may seem out of place, but in reality, he's exactly where he belongs. Even more, he's right where he wants to be. Instead of being ashamed of them, he calls them family. Jesus wouldn't hide this family picture He'd hang it on the wall. End quote. That's the kind of savior Jesus is. He invites every one of us to become part of his family. So don't stand on the outside making false assessments of who he is. Come in, sit at his feet, and listen to him, and believe in him, and follow him. Be his disciple. That means be a learner of him. And if you already are one of those this morning, then rejoice that even in all of your sin and my sin, he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Praise God for that. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we praise you that you've made us part of your family. Even with our sin and our rebellion, you sent your beautiful son to pluck us out of the fire, so to speak, and make us your own. We have often strayed from him, but he has never left us. He has never left us forsaken as one of the hymns says, Thou on my head in early youth did smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, Thou hast not left me, though I oft left Thee, on to the close, Lord, abide with me. Lord, let us not wrongly single out... um, the Jewish rejection of the Lord Jesus in the scriptures, but help us to see it's not just a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. One that we can only overcome by the sovereign power and grace of Almighty God because without that, we are all Christ rejectors. Thank you for bringing us, Lord, to repentance and faith Help us better to understand our calling and our charge to be uh, salt and light to this world. May we not fear men, but fear God. May we not be afraid of being shunned or or thought of as being out of our minds. Because the Lord Jesus himself was in such a position. We're, We're in very good company. Lord, just continue your work in us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of your truth, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.